Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the time that we have together together and just study the book of Hosea and for, Lord, what you wrote a few thousand years ago, Lord, and the meaning that it has for us today. Lord, I just pray that we would um, allow your word to penetrate our hearts, to convict us of sin, and Lord, to change our lives and to draw us closer to you. God, I just pray as the ladies here are tired, they've had a busy day, I pray that you would quiet their minds and just help them to be able to enjoy reflecting on your word and then fellowshipping around your word. Thank you for all that you have done for us and for loving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So you guys can hear me okay? Everybody? So, okay. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to cover Hosea 1 through 3. And uh, then next week you'll be doing the table time for lesson two. So that's what you'll be doing the discussion time for that. So um, on the back of your outline, there are three discussion questions that your table leaders can discuss with you. And that will be kind of based on the lecture that we're doing today. So um, I want to go ahead and uh, begin. We talked last, two weeks ago, we talked about an introduction to Hosea, so I don't really need to go into a lot of that. Uh, You do know that the first king, Jeroboam, set up the idolatry. He set up temples of sacrifice in both Dan and Bethel, and that was in violation of what God's law was. God's law was that the worship needed to be in Jerusalem. The people needed to come to Jerusalem, so when they had their civil war and the two nations divided, Uh, The northern king did not want his people to be swayed by those in the south, so he didn't want them to go down to Jerusalem. It was his own selfish ambitions that led to him creating the temple services. And in those temples, he built um, golden calves. So the temples weren't built to worship Yahweh. They were built to worship the gods of the country there that they were in. Um, So Jeroboam, his decision to do this, brought idolatry even more to the forefront, and it never left. And so for the next 200 years, God would send prophets to Israel and to Judah to warn them to turn away from idolatry and to return to him. About 755 BC, God would send one last prophet, and that was Hosea. And his message was aimed to encourage Israel to return to the Lord. So this brings us to the book of Hosea. And right now I just want to go ahead and share with you uh, what God has laid on my heart. I won't be reading all of the passages clear through, but I'll be reading bits and pieces as we walk through it. So the first uh, point is Hosea's symbolic marriage and his children. So in verse 1, we see the resume of Hosea. It says, the Lord, word of Yahweh came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Hosea's name means Yahweh saves, or salvation. So that shows you basically the message of his book and his ministry is the Lord saves, and it's to draw the people back to the Lord. You'll see that God lists both kings from the southern kingdom and from the northern kingdom. Now, why does God do that? Well, we really don't know why, except with the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is like the last most significant king of the the northern kingdom. The rest of the kings really don't play much a part of what goes on. They're all evil. They all follow after the the idols of the day they don't return to the Lord so Jeroboam is like the last substantial king to the northern kingdom so that may be why they only emphasize one king for the northern and list several for the southern kingdom 
Verse 2, we see God's instruction. He says, go and take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Uh, the word harlotry means zanu. It's Z-A-N-U-H if you're interested in the Hebrew. And it means whoredom. It's illicit acts of sex with the potential of financial gain. So it's the type of sex that gives you payment in return for what you do. And the word is also equated with polytheistic idolatry. And in the land, they worshipped Baal. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Well, Baal, Baal was like actually a whole conglomeration of deities. It wasn't just one deity, although in scripture we read about it, and it focuses mainly on fertility and prosperity. And it's always the, the people are worshiping Baal, but Baal actually had a conglomeration of a lot of different deities. But the ones that really hit our scripture that we read, it's when it's the God of fertility or the God of prosperity. And so that's who they worship. Um, and the, the idea of the polytheistic idolatry was that it was so pervasive in the land, no one was untainted by the idolatry that was part of the land. And Hosea is given a command. He says to marry a woman of harlotry and to have children of harlot, harlotry. And why is he to do this? He's to do this because the land commits flagrant harlotry. Now we have to understand the context of what God is asking Hosea to do. If you read it as, well, wow, he's told to this, so maybe I'm told to go out and marry a prostitute. And so that I can serve the Lord and be a voice for him. No, that's not the purpose of Hosea. It's not to teach us how to find our mate, nor how to parent our children. So, or nor how to name them. <laughs> so God has specific purposes for the prophets. And their life was not to be emulated, but it was to be looked at and seen and heard. So their words, they were the mouthpiece of God and they were to call the people back to re repentance and to obedience. Hosea's life would serve as an illustration to the people. Oftentimes they were called to serve and to do really hard things. And like Isaiah was told to walk around naked for three years. That wasn't to create a new commune of naked people. It was because he illustrated by walking around naked for three years, he illustrated the, the shame and humiliation that their sin was against God. And so his life, he was called to put on that shame and humiliation and to walk around that way, to picture that to the people. It was a voice calling the people back to God, to repentance. So through the life of Hosea, God is going to give Israel a visual that's designed to shock them to the core because they're going to watch Hosea's marriage and his children for all of his life, and it's supposed to be shocking. What they see Hosea do is supposed to shock them by the boldness of what he's called to do, but it's to make them focus on what they're doing to God how unfaithful they are, and to see the depth of their sin before Yahweh. So imagine the response of people who had to watch Hosea, this young godly prophet, and they see him embrace a, pr a prostitute. They see him bring her into her, his home. They see him name these children, really not in good names. What If they go up to the children and they say, what's your name? And they say, my name is No Compassion, or my name is I'm Not Your God. You know, what about a conversation starter? Well, that would do it. <laughs> because they would picture, they would be seeing God's word in these children's lives. And as we'll see through, as we get into chapter 3, we'll see that, or chapter 2, we'll see that these children, they live with this their whole life.
Hosea's children are impacted by the acts of their mother. And so this is what we're going to be getting into. Now, why would God assign Hosea such a poignant and painful task? One that, honestly, if you consider what he was asked to do and what he had to live with, this would bring years of pain and sorrow to his life. Well, it's because the land had openly engaged in unfaithfulness, and they were committing flagrant harlotry and forsaking Yahweh. But this, this behavior was not unusual with the other nations, so why was Israel called to account? And that's huge because the other nations were in idolatry. That's who Israel learned it from, right? It was from the other nations. Well, it's, Israel is important because Israel has a unique relationship with God. They're his chosen people and they've married into or they've entered into a marriage covenant with God. This covenant symbolized a physical and a spiritual bond with Yahweh, who was their faithful, loving husband. He brought them out of Egypt. He fed them. He protected them in the wilderness. He led them through the wilderness as they wandered uh, with a pillar of fire and a holy cloud to guide them so they would know when it was time to move and when they were to stay in one place. He brought them to the land that he had promised their father Abraham would be theirs. He brought them into this land. This land was a land that was overflowing with milk and honey. But then as they were getting ready to enter into the land, when Moses was still there, God said, there's some conditions. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God told the people, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As being a people united in covenant to God, their obedience was an integral part to this covenant. They were given blessings for obedience, but disobedience would result in punishment. And I gave you uh, passages that if you want to read more about the covenant with God, you can read those in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But the covenant that they made was not a foreign covenant to that area. When we studied Deuteronomy, we studied, we talked about the Caesarean covenant. And that was a covenant that nations would make when you had a nation who had more strength, more might. It was a more sovereign nation and you had smaller, weaker nations. They would enter into a covenant with that nation for protection. The Caesarean had the control because they were the, the almighty kingdom. The other one was more servitude. This is the same kind of covenant that Israel entered into with God. God was their sovereign. And they were recognizing that they were his people. They were reliant on him, and they agreed to the covenant with God. And they said, we will obey you, we will get rid of all of the idols. And God was very strong um, in calling them when they first came into the land to eradicate all of the idols of the land. And yet, several hundred years later, we see, in the time of Hosea, that they failed to obey. King after king allowed the high places to persist. The high places were elevated areas in the land where they had actually um, created altars for the people to come and worship in. But it wasn't just in the high places that you had idolatry. Keep in mind, Baal was the god of fertility and of prosperity. So you would have had it in your home because if you wanted children, you wanted a prosperous family, you would have needed idols in your home, in your bedrooms, everywhere in your home. But then in your field, he was also the god that was what would bring you your crop and your produce. So they had idols in their land, in their crops, in their fields. They said somebody who went to talked about coming into, Israel, into the land for Israel, it's like every step you took 
would have had some fragment of idol in it. The idolatry was so prevalent and God said, get rid of it. Get rid of all of it because he knew that this would be a downfall to Israel. The idolatry of the land would take them away from him. So um, Homer, Homer, (laughs) I knew I was going to say Homer one of these times. Hosea and Gomer, their marriage would serve as (laughs) as a last warning to the downfall of Israel. He had one last time to repent before judgment comes. Now we see in verses 3 through 9 that Hosea obeys. He goes and he takes Gomer and they have three children. Each child has been given a name by Yahweh to symbolize the message of the people. Um, And so Hosea, in verse 3, he obeys and he takes Gomer as his wife. Now the first question I have when I read this is, okay, who is Gomer? Because there's different views about who Gomer is. And something I've had to to face is that I've read Hosea and I've been taught Hosea all my life. And I have preconceived ideas about Hosea that are not necessarily scriptural. They're not based in scripture. So I want you to kind of erase what you've thought and just look at scripture and think about considering some of these other options. The first question is, prior to marriage, was she a prostitute? Was she an adulterous woman who'd had affairs in the past? Or was she a normal woman of the day who would go into adultery and harlotry. And that first, that last one, I was like, nah, I don't think so. He says, take a wife of harlotry. But when you look at the wording in the Hebrew, it's open to, it could be a woman who will go into harlotry. Now, I probably lean toward thinking that she was a woman of harlotry because of the visual that God was portraying. He wanted to shock them into seeing what was unusual about this marriage of Hosea and Gomer. John MacArthur actually believes that she was a a normal woman of the day, and she then fell into harlotry after the marriage. He's got a lot of knowledge, and I won't disagree with him, but I kind of do. But that's okay, because Scripture doesn't tell us what this is. So we aren't going to bank on it. We're not going to go anywhere with that, because um, we're going to stick with what Scripture says, and that's where we'll... Uh, take our stand, not in what we don't really quite know. We can have our opinions, and that's all it is. But Hosea is called to marry a woman who is or will become a harlot, and she will live the life of a whore. That we do know. That will be Gomer. Regardless of her status at marriage, she's going to go into harlotry, and she will be a whore. Hosea's marriage is going to powerfully portray God's relationship with Israel. Homer's faithlessness will show the people their own faithlessness and the whoredom toward Yahweh, their God. So Gomer conceives after they're married, and over time they have three children that are born. Jezreel is the first child, and that's his name. His name is Jezreel, she, and the scripture says she conceived and gave birth to a son for him. Now this is the only child that's actually linked back to Hosea. It's thought that the other two children were actually children of her harlot tree. Because it doesn't connect Hosea to those two children. Jezreel is connected to Hosea. It says she conceived and birthed a son for him. Jezreel means God sows. His name is symbolic of God's judgment on the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. So naming a child Jezreel to Israel would be similar to us naming a child Pearl Harbor. It would bring up memories of a very difficult time in our history. Jezreel symbolized bloodshed. The Israelis knew, the Jewish people knew when they heard the name Jezreel that it was associated with violence and bloodshed. 
This is where Jezreel Valley is where Jehu massacred the house of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, the interesting thing about Jehu is that when he came on as king, God anointed him to, uh, to give judgment to the house of Ahab. God anointed him to get rid of Ahab and Jezebel because they were so wicked. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings Israel had. First uh, Kings 21 says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Jahab, or like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Not only was Ahab evil, but his wife influenced him to even greater evil. She was influential in putting the prophets from God to death. She was influential in creating more worship for Baal in the land. She was an evil woman who influenced her husband toward greater evil. So why the judgment? Well, we really don't know for sure because Jehu was anointed by God to destroy Ahab's household. But Jahab went a step further. He seemed, if you look at the, the scriptures I've given you, if you read those, it seems like he gets a little bloodthirsty on his own. He seems to exceed what boundaries God gave him. But Second Kings 10, I think, gives you the real reason, and that's it says, Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord their God, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. So he followed after the ways of the king's that followed their own heart and not God's heart. So this, the second child is born. She's a daughter. Her name is Lo Ruhama. Lo um, whereas with Jezreel, the scripture identifies him with Hosea. With the daughter, there's no mention of the father. So is she a product of harlotry? We don't know, but that's possible. Her name means no compassion. God says, I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forget them. So this is a terrifying change for the people. When you realize what God is saying to them, their whole founding as a nation has been founded on God's compassion and his forgiveness and him drawing the people to himself. So he's withdrawn himself from them in his compassion and his love. This is a nation that was built on that, but now he says, I will not ever have compassion on you. His language is so strong. But then in verse 7, God inserts that he will have compassion on Judah. But if you read that verse, you realize there's a real key thought in that verse. And that is, who's the focus of your worship? Who are you attributing the prosperity to? Because what he warns Judah through this is that they must never forget to recognize that God is the source of their prosperity not themselves. And as we study a little further in here, we'll realize that Israel had taken on and attributed their prosperity to the worship of the Baals, not of God. They had forgot God, and God is saying to Judah, never forget that everything you have comes from my hand. I'm your redeemer. I'm your provider. Follow in the footsteps that I've commanded you, not the footsteps of the northern kingdom. So it's a warning to Judah is what this is. Then you have in verses 8 and 9, you have the birth of Lo-Ami. She has a sobering name, or he has this most sobering name of all. It's that God's judgment has reached its climax. Lo-Ami means not my people. God has, has so, I would say, wholly and proudly taken Israel unto himself. He's poured his love on them. 
They are his people. He's let them know, you are my people. I am your God. And yet now their sin is so great. They had had that marriage covenant, and now God is saying, you're no longer my, my people. He separated himself from them. The, the covenant they had with God is annulled. This is like the divorce of that covenant. The marriage is no longer a marriage. His, provid- his providential care has been withdrawn. He's promised to care for them and do and provide for them. But now he's saying, because you have broken the covenant with me, I'm withdrawing the providential care. And that's within his rights. Again, keep in mind, this was a covenant that Israel had entered in with, with God. And God is saying, you have not kept up your end of the covenant. And so this is the consequence that I told you it would be. This is the consequence. So God separates himself from them. They brought this judgment on themselves, and it's a verdict that God is forced to give to them. So the message of hope and salvation, though, now in verse 10, this is what we'll see through Hosea. We'll see where the scripture is going through sobering judgment. And then the very next verse is a 180, and it's this amazing blessing. Now we're talking about two, two times of Israel. Israel, for that day, is going into judgment. Assyria is going to come and take them into captivity. But there's a future day for Israel where God's promises will be lavished on them and his blessings. So this message of hope is to this future remnant of Israel. And the chapter ends with a beautiful proclamation of hope. The given names of the children just proclaimed judgment prior to this, but now they're proclaiming blessing and restoration. Israel will again be like the sands of the seashore. God will be faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham. Whereas when you read the judgments, God is very clear in why the judgments are being enacting. In a legal sense, God is going back and saying, this is the covenant I made with you. You've broken the covenant by these means. And this is why, because with blessings come uh, with obedience comes blessings, with disobedience come punishment. This is why the punishments are coming, is because of these sins that you've committed. But then when God gets to the blessings, there's no reason listed. He doesn't say, because you've returned to me, because you've got your act together finally, Israel, now I will bless you. He doesn't say any of that. The blessings is because he's faithful to his word. The blessings is because he loves them with a love that will not let go. And that's actually the title I would have put on your outline, but I got ahead of myself and sent it before I wrote the title. So, But the title is A Love That Will Not Let Go. That's the love that God has for Israel. So over and over, when you see these blessings coming back, that's the affirmation that God will not remove his love from Israel. Will judgment come? Yes. But God's love is still there. Not my people will become my people. They will be the sons of the living God. And Jezreel will go from a place of destruction to a place of deliverance and salvation. Chapter 1 ends with the great mercies, uh, promises of mercy. And it repeats the promises that, that um, God gave Abraham. These are promises that Israel will see in the future, though. Uh, it's a time when the children of Judah and Israel will come together under one head. The land that was divided after Solomon and now is the northern and the southern kingdom that we see, they will be reunited under the leadership of Christ. It's the place where Israel heard the words, you're not to be my people, but it will be said now, you are the sons of the living God. To know compassion 
God's compassion will be in abundance. And there will be a great day for Jezreel. Jezreel, known as a field of bloodshed, will be known as a place for salvation. The place of judgment now becomes the place of salvation. You know, I was asking you when we first did our introduction, be looking for parallels to Christ through the book of Hosea. The first one that came up to me was the day of Jezreel, where it would be a day of salvation. But it was at one time judgment. And I thought, what else in scripture is judgment at one time but salvation now? The cross. The cross was a place of judgment, right? It's where those that were determined wrong were put to death because of the judgment. And yet Christ bore our judgment on the cross. And because of his resurrection, he turned what was meant to be judgment into salvation. And only Christ could do that. So the cross for those that are his children symbolizes salvation. It's where God took our judgment. But because of that, we have salvation. And the day of Jezreel will be great because it will be symbolizing God's salvation. And the day of judgment will be gone. But Israel is going to have to suffer the consequences of the judgment for their sin. Yet God is faithful to his word. Not only is his judgment, in his, but also in his mercy. And that's what we have to realize is that God is as completely justice and holy as he is merciful and loving. We're in a society that really wants to emphasize God's love, but they don't emphasize God's justice and his holiness. God has to condemn and judge sin. If it wasn't for his son, we would have to pay the price for our sin. But Christ paid that price for us. So we don't have to pay the price. But God demands payment. Aren't we thankful we're not back in the days of Israel when God's judgment came and the earth opened up and the whole household got swallowed up because of a sin? Aren't we thankful? But sometimes I think that we take sin too lightly. God is just as displeased with sin in our lives as he was in the Israelis' lives, the Jewish people's lives. But we have the grace of the cross. We have forgiveness. We have the Holy Spirit within us convicting us of our sin. Um, and that's the day that we live in. So we go on into Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 14. Verse 2 is a call to the children. The, the call to the children is, Contend with your mother. Contend, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. The message is to contend with your mother. Let her know that she's in sin, and her sin is the sin of harlotry. In verse 2, the children of Hosea are called to contend with their mother. Now the word contend, contend in the Hebrew is rib, R-I-B. It means to quarrel or to go into verbal contact, combat with someone. It's to plead. It's a very emotional word. It's a contend. You are um, really going into battle to bring them out, to, to get your point of view across. It also carries a legal and a judicial meaning. And I think in light of the covenant, when God says contend, it's because of the covenant that God is contending with her. He will not wipe her out because he's promised to not. He's bound by his covenant to, to a nation of Israel who will be his own, who has a remnant that he, will, that he will keep for himself. He's legally bound. He can't destroy Israel because he's bound by his covenant. So the children are called to contend with their mother. This is God contending with Israel. The price of their sin requires a legal act, and that act is going to be God's judgment. God must act as a result of their sin. He's just and he's holy. 
Now the children are probably adults by this time. So um, Jezreel, no mercy, not my, not my children. Those are probably adult children. And they're to be that voice against Israel to warn their mother about the consequences of her sin. The message of their name is continuing in their lives. They're living with this throughout their lives. Jose goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, For she is not my wife, I am not her husband. Let her remove her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set forth as on the day when she was born and make her like a wilderness and make like her like dry land and put her to death with thirst. So why does Hosea not contend with his wife? Why is it the children? I asked myself that, and I thought, you know, it's probably, and I'm speculating and guessing here, but it's probably that um, Gomer no longer lives with Hosea. She's in chapter 3, we'll see, she has a companion. She's with a friend. It says husband in chapter 3, but that's not actually the right interpretation. She's with someone else. So Gomer is probably no longer at home. And Hosea says, she's no longer my wife, and I'm no longer her, her husband. And so I think she's physically absent out of the life of Hosea right now. And the wording here is very reminiscent of divorce cases in the Mideast. And I got that from the commentaries. Um, there's an urgency for the children to contend with their mother because of the threat of discipline that God is issuing. The word lest, lest I strip her naked. What he's saying is if she doesn't make a break with her harlotry, then she will have to endure the discipline of God. So the word lust communicates the threat of discipline coming. Now I think we have to be very careful to not um, put our thoughts and our values of today on what's written in scripture. I did read a few commentaries that made the comment that this seems almost abusive to Gomer because he's threatening discipline. And I thought, okay, we have to be very careful to not read scripture through the lens of today. You have to read scripture through scripture, and then you apply it to the world today, but you don't let the world today dictate how scripture speaks. So we have to be very careful because this is not the threat of unwarranted discipline. It is the threat of God's discipline, but he's not going to go beat her senselessly. He's following the covenant promises that Israel agreed to. This is God's word, and God's word in Hosea is graphic. But we can't shy away from it because it's what his word says. Discipline is coming, but it's the discipline of a father who loves his children, who loves them enough to say, I'm not going to let you out in your sin because this is hard for you. This is bad for you. It's, it's harmful to you. I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to bring you back with discipline because your heart is hard against me. It's what you do with your children. If you have a child that has refused to listen to you, and they're running away from you. Guys, you want them to know they need to obey you. Because what if they run out into the street and a car's coming? They need to obey. Kids need to know obedience. Sometimes that might mean carrying out discipline that can be painful. Because you love them. And you don't want them just going their own way. Because you know that's harmful. That's the, the love that God has for Israel. He knows that the direction they're going is harmful to them. And he wants to draw them back to himself. God goes on and says, I will strip her naked, expose her shame in front of her lovers. I will remove the blessings that I've given her. I will slay her with thirst and she'll be incapable of sustaining life or fertility. The woman that wanted to be able to reproduce, that wanted to be able to live her life as she, she can, is now incapable 
of even sustaining life or fertility. Verses 4 and 5, I also will have no compassion on her children. Her children are suffering from the consequences of her sin. She's walked out from her children. She's left them so that she could play the harlot. She's left them to choose to pursue her lovers, the Baals, the gods of the land. She believes that her gods are giving her everything that she wants, and she's deceived. She credits the Baals and the idols with giving things that only Yahweh could have been giving her from his hand. But she's saying, you're not giving them, they are giving it to me. She's choosing to pursue them and to reject God. But she's blinded by her sin, and she believes a lie. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore, behold, I will hedge her way up with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she can't find her paths. She will pursue her lovers. She will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but she will not find them. Part of the discipline God brings to her is to limit, to eliminate her access to her lovers. She, Israel, will pursue them, but God will block them at every turn. Their normal path that they would have taken to find their God, God is going to block by a hedge of thorns. The hand of God is orchestrating this discipline. He's blocking her efforts to get to her lovers. God is saying that he will hedge her up with thorns so that anyone that comes after her will be pricked. He's going to build a wall against her so she can't even get there. She's fervently pursuing her sin, regardless of the destruction that it's bringing on her family. Why is God bringing this discipline, this painful discipline to her? Because he loves her too much to let her stay in her sin. He loves her with a love that will not let go. So in verses 7 and 8, she decides to return to her first husband. She says, for it was better for me than now. Now she does not know that it was I, Yahweh, who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, the multiplied silver and gold. That was from the hand of God, but she used it for her worship of Baal. Notice that she only returns to her husband because it's better for her. She doesn't do it because she's had a change of heart. She's not repentant. She just is thinking still of self-interest. It's all about herself. This is easier for her to be with him. So in her sin, she's removed herself so far from God that she doesn't even know and recognize all that God's hand has given her. Her grain, her wine, her silver, and her gold, that's all been given to her by God. And yet she's turned around and sacrificed all that to Baal instead of giving it to God. She doesn't give God the credit for what he's done. She's taken all that he's given her and she's turned around and sacrificed that to her gods, seeking her own pleasure. Verse 8, she does not know that it was I who gave her these things. To me, that's heartbreaking. That shows the heart of God. He's like, she is flaunting this. She's worshiping these other lovers. She doesn't even realize when I've given her a good gift. What if your husband brought you a good gift? They brought you something really nice. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad so-and-so gave this to me. You know, well, that would be hurtful. But if that was another lover that you attributed that to, that would be devastating. And that's what she was doing to God. She had gone to other lovers and she was taking everything God had given her and she was praising her lovers by lavishing them with the gifts in the worship that she would portray to them. She would get everything that God gave her back to her lover. The word know, for she does not know, that implies a lack of knowledge of the covenant. The covenant was binding. The covenant wasn't something a nation could forget. If you were the servitude nation, 
to some country like Assyria? Do you think Assyria is going to let you forget even four or five hundred years later that you're not in covenant with them anymore? No. Assyria would never let you forget that. The same way Israel has forgotten that they're in covenant with God. Ignoring God might have been forgivable, but forgetting God was not something you could do in the covenant relationship. Deuteronomy 8 says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by, keeping, by not keeping His commandments, His ordinances, His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. And this is what God is saying prior to going into the land. He knows the heart of the people. He knows they are going to do this very thing. But he's putting it down in writing. Do not forget me. Do not forget the ordinances and the statute that I've been giving you today that you've said you will obey. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and you've built good houses and you live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply, all the things she's taking and giving to her lovers... God is saying, when I have done all of this, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord made perish before you. You will per perish because you did not listen to the voice of God. As Israel came into the land, God said, get rid of the idols. He also said, there are certain nations in this land you need to totally eradicate off the, place, the face of the earth. Because their sin has reached a limit, and I'm getting rid of them. But Israel never obeyed. She let people live that she not, should not have let live. She did not obey. She did not destroy the high places. She didn't destroy the idolatry. And so this is where we find Israel now in the book of Hosea. She's forgotten God. She's become just as wicked as the surrounding nations that never knew God. God says in Leviticus 26, he says, If you walk in my statutes and you keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in the seasons so the lands will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear fruit. Israel should have remembered that everything they've had came from the hand of God, came from his promises, but she's forgotten God. She's gone from the worship of God to the worship of idols. And when you're worshiping idols and you're in sin, it causes you to forget the knowledge of God. So isn't that true in our own lives, guys? Doesn't sin block out the knowledge of God? When we embrace sin, when we allow ourselves to go into sin and to become entrenched in sin, the knowledge of God gets more and more distance in our life. That's where the people of Israel are at. They don't remember the knowledge of God. We have to be vigilant against the sin that seeks to remove God's knowledge from us. And aren't we thankful that we have the Holy Spirit in us? If you're a child of God, you may desire to sin, but you're never going to be happy in your sin. Because the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. If you've walked into sin and you're actually happy and enjoying it, then what if, where's the Spirit? What does that say about your heart? That's a scary place to be because Hebrews and 1 John would say maybe you're not a believer if you have no conviction of sin in your life and yet you're walking in sin. So we need to be so thankful for the presence of the Holy Spirit that keeps us from falling into the sin the way Israel did. 
Verses 9 through 13, it says, Therefore God gives her the consequences of her actions. God's going to take all the provision that he's so abundantly showered on her. He's going to take it back. And the word take back means to snatch away or to tear off. It's a violent move. And it's the beginning of her judgments. He's going to remove her provisions. He's going to take back the grain that he showered on her. Um, that he, he would bring a curse to the land and he'd take back that grain through drought, through blight, through in, insect invasions. All those things would come into the land now because before they were in their golden age. Keep in mind, right now Israel's prosperous. They're doing well. God has poured his blessings on them. But they're attributing all those blessings to their worship of Baal. So, Baal. so that's why they're getting even more and more and more steeped in that worship. Is because they think that's why their crops are doing well. They think that's why they're, they're fertile. Is because of the worship of their gods that they're worshiping. And God is saying, I'm going to strip all of this away. And you're going to see it came from my hand. It didn't come from your dead stones that you're calling a god. She will be left naked without wool and flax. So how will she cover herself? Verse 10, God will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lover so that her lovers will see her and they will reject her. Nobody will want to be with her. The word lewdness means mablut, M-A-B-L-U-T. It's a withered state. If you can think of pictures from after World War II when the um, armies came in to uh, free the death camps, Auschwitz, Treblinka camps like that. You remember seeing pictures that came out after the fact of how skeletal the people were. You'd see them in the bunkhouse and it'd be like just skeletons on top of each other, living skeletons. They said when people were walking out of those camp, they were described as dead men walking because they were just skeletal. That's a withered state. This woman who was a beautiful wife, clothed and provided for, is now a harlot, starved, withered, and she's the subject of humility and shame. Verse 11, she'll no longer be able to enjoy the festivals that she was celebrating with her gods, Baal. God would destroy her produce. The things she saw as wages from her lovers, God would destroy. She would continue to try and pursue her lovers, but God would punish her. So all of these things are what brought the painful, disciplining hand of God on her sin. She had sought other lovers. She had attributed her prosperity to them. And she forgot the Lord and gave her worship to the false gods and lovers. So, but then again, we see God's restoration and his compassion in verse 14. Therefore, for no other reason but that God loves with a love that will not let go, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak to her heart. I think that's one of the most romantic verses in Scripture. When you realize the heart of God is, I will bring her back. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness had been a place of judgment, but now it was going to be a place of salvation. It was going to be a place of safety. He was taking her as far away from her gods, as far away from Egypt, into the wilderness so that he could lavish his love on her. He was going to woo her back to himself, speaking tenderly as a man speaks to his bride. The wilderness was going to be a place of safety, a place where God would plant his vineyards and give her all the prosperity. He would lavish his love on her there. Where she once was in the valley of Achor, and the word Achor is trouble, and it refers to the sin of Achan, and you can read about that in Joshua 7. Now Israel will be facing a door of hope that will be leading to the day that Israel will once again come out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Isaiah 65. It will be a time when Israel is carefully or is cared tenderly for by God. 
it definitely portrays the bridegroom caring for his bride. It's a time of redemption for Israel. God is doing all of this. He's going to give her a new heart. He's going to draw her to himself because he loves her with a love that will never let go. Verses 16 and 17 says, And it will come in that day, declares Yahweh, that you will call on me. You will call me Ishi, my husband, no longer Baali, my master. And I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, so they will be remembered no more. This is God's action. Israel hasn't repented. Israel didn't change their ways. God redeemed Israel. And guys, God redeems us. I can't do anything good on my own apart from God. I am Israel. Guys, when you guys read this and you think, wow, they're evil. No, we are Israel. This is our message to us. We are Gomer. We might want to think we're Hosea, but we're not. (laughs) We're Gomer. And Israel is us. Israel is our heart. And so sin wants to rule over us. God says, I will have you call me Ishi, my husband, instead of Baali, my master. That sin wants to master us. God wants to nurture and love us. Then verses 18 through 20, it says, In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. I will break the bow, the sword, the war, the land. I will make them lie down in security. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know Yahweh. This is the promise for Israel. This is a promise for a future Israel, not the Israel we're seeing today, because they're going into judgment. God will betroth her to himself. This will be a new beginning for Israel. It will be a betrothal that is binding. His promise is faithfulness is going to be characterized through Israel. Israel will know God. She'll know that intimacy, that loyalty, and that obedience that he desires. Jezreel in verses 20 and 21 will become a valley of blessing. The land will be fruitful because it will be planted by the hand of the Lord. Lo-ru-hama, not loved, and lo-ami, not my people, will experience God's compassion, and they will be called his people. Israel will acknowledge that God's sovereign over all of their blessings. Guys, this is so beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of what is to come. It's not what we're seeing now. Then we go into Hosea 3, verses 1 through 5. And what we see is God's love for Israel. So it's illustrated by Hosea's love for, for Gomer. He never stops loving her. He continues to love her with a love that will not let go. Even after these proclamations of judgment, God still loves her. So Yahweh instructs Hosea, go and love a woman who's loved by another. Now the word love here is illustrating God's love for his people. It's a powerful, intimate bond. The passage tells us so much about God's love. God's love is constant. His love will never let go regardless of man's actions. She's with, I know some of the passages, some of your translations say a husband. She's not with Hosea, she's with a companion. That word means companion or paramour or friend. Gomer's with another man, not with Hosea. So even when Israel is enmeshed in harlotry, God loves her. And Hosea is to take Gomer back home. This passage also shows us that man's love is trivial in comparison to God. What do they love? They love raisin cakes. But God loves them in spite of the filthiness of their sin. 
God's love is demonstrated through his forgiveness and his restoration. If you want to think about how our love is manifested differently from the love of others that are around us who don't know Christ, guys, it's the ability to forgive. It's the ability to restore relationships in times when forgiveness may seem impossible. Guys, there's no forgiveness that is greater than the forgiveness God gave us in our sins. We didn't want Him. We didn't want Him to call us. We were running against Him. We were enjoying our sin, and yet God called us to Himself, and He forgave our sins when we weren't even asking for that forgiveness. But when He does that, we realize the beauty of that. That's the picture of God's love to the world. And Hosea had to learn that forgiveness because he had to model that to Gomer. Here, Gomer is living with somebody else. Uh, Hosea is called to bring her back out into his home, and he's told to love her. He's to demonstrate that love for those around him so that they would see God's love for Israel. They would see the, the faithfulness of God's love. Hosea's actions are deliberate. He does exactly what God says, but instead of it saying, I took her, he said, I bought her. She had to go buy her. So her lover loves her so much that he said, well, you can't take her, but I'll sell her to you. And he sells her to Hosea for the price of a slave. This shows you how degraded she was. But Hosea's love would come at a price because it comes out of the price of his life. His whole life is mirrored by his relationship with Gomer. His children's lives are mirrored because of the relationship with their mother. And he's willing to do that because he's accomplishing God's purposes. So he takes action, he buys her back, and then he brings her into his home and he lays down the terms. This is the first time we see Hosea speak to Gomer. He says, you shall stay with me. Your days of being an adulteress are over. Her activities are going to be sharply limited. She's to remain with Hosea. She's going to go through a period of chastening and deprivation. She's not allowed to belong to any man, even to Hosea himself. There's no temple, no sacrifice, no relationship with God. She is in isolation. And God, guys, I think this is where Israel is today. I think Israel is in a time of isolation from God. Obviously, as a nation, they're not seeking God. They're not seeking after Him. And yet, because God has put Israel on hold in His relationship, He now has taken the gospel to the Gentiles, to the church age, to us. So while Israel's in isolation, the gospel has come to us, and we're able to be grafted in with Israel. So I think this is where we see Israel now. She's in a time of separation from God. There's no formal religious institution activity. I do believe, though, Israel came back into the nation and, and created a nation in 1948. They came back, and they're a nation now. I think we're on a time clock for the day that God will fully restore Israel. And I remember when I was, I was in Israel twice, uh, once with Bookman, but one time I lived there during high school, college, I guess it was, for 10 months, and not 10 months, I'm sorry, uh, 10 weeks. And um, while I was there talking to all the different Jewish people, it was really interesting because they have such a knowledge of the Old Testament. They are steeped in the Old Testament in school. It's like they're seeing this puzzle in front of them and all of the pieces are turned upside down, up, upright. So they see all the faces of the puzzle pieces, but they don't fit together. When you start talking about Christ, it's like there's a wall that goes down. They don't see the connection. They don't see the Old Testament connection to the New Testament, to Christ. 
they don't see that. But there's going to be a day, and I was going to look up the scripture, and I didn't, um, but I'll do that in a couple weeks, and I'll give that to you, where God's going to remove the veil from the eyes of the Israelis, from the Jewish people, from that nation. And they're going to see, they're going to have a national, uh, national, a national revival. And it's going to be when God removes their scales and they see Him. And they believe Him. And God will call them back to Himself. Now, right now, can, Israel, can Jewish people accept Christ? Yes. Individually. But as a nation, no. They won't come to God until God removes that, that veil. And He lets them see Him. But for that time right now, God is working on us as His church. It's a beautiful time that we're looking forward to. But like I said, I think we're on a clock ticking toward those last days. And so we need to be serious about our study of His Word. We need to be serious about communicating His Word to those around us. Now, as we close this, I've got three closing thoughts that I'd like to give you really quickly here. And I know I'm kind of crunching into any of your discussion time, so I apologize. But I do want to leave these thoughts with you. The first one is um, Israel's sense that they forgot God. What causes us to forget God? The more entangled you allow sin to become in your life, the more distant you become from God's knowledge and knowing His love. The second is um, God's love is wrong. Um, God's love is a love that will not let us go. And this is something I, several years ago I shared an illustration of the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm so thankful for the keeping power of the Holy Spirit. Once you've accepted Christ, guys, you can't lose your salvation. God will lose no one that He's called to Himself, right? John 6, John 10, 28, I've gave them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But can we still be tempted by sin? Yes, we can still be tempted by sin. And that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Because as a child of God, I don't want to sin, but sometimes I'm enticed. And I used this example years ago, and it was in my little poodle, BP. It's a dog example, of course. Um, we had, this is when I was a kid, and BP was my little poodle. And we had a, a wire that would stretch from our house to the barn, and we'd put a chain on the wire. And then BP, when he wanted to go outside, we would hook him up to his chain and let him go. And he could go outside and do his little duty, play, but he was safe because he was on the chain, right? Well, sometimes he would want to see, he'd see a squirrel or something, or a bird or a rabbit or anything out there. And he'd go ballistic in the house. So we'd go, and we'd put him on the chain, and you'd let him go, and you'd hear this, as he's running out to the barn. And then all of a sudden, he's this little nine-pound dog. All of a sudden, what would happen is you'd see this flip because he got to the end of the chain and he couldn't go any further. And I thought, guys, that's sometimes sin entices us, doesn't it? But the keeping power of the Holy Spirit, God, as a child of His, I might be tempted, but God is not going to let that sin take me out. No one, no sin in my life is strong enough to take me out of God's hands as a child of His. Now, sin is serious. God is serious. And it says in Scripture, sometimes He will take people home because they're walking in defiance of Him, meaning they'll take them out of the body into heaven. They'll take them prematurely to heaven. So sin is serious. I'm not saying this gives you license to sin, but it gives you the comfort of knowing the Holy Spirit. And the last is just considering idolatry in our lives. Um, it's so easy to think of idolatry as physical idols. And most of us probably don't, you know, don't really struggle with idols in our life. But I think the definition of idolatry is pretty simple. And we see it so clearly in the book of Hosea. It's loving anything more than you love God. Loving isn't the issue. God has created us to love. We can love our children. We can love our husbands. We can love our families. We can love our pets. There's a lot of things we can love. But if you have to put your love for all those things on a scale and you compare it to your love of God, 
where does the scale tip? If the scale, the love for your parent, your family, your children, your pets, your things is higher, is weightier than your love for God, then you have an issue. Then you've got idols in your heart. But if your love for God is still sovereign and you say, Lord, thank you for the blessings you've given me of my children. Thank you for the blessings you've given me of even, you know, mature, the blessings we have here in our country. You know, um, it's not wrong to have those blessings. It's how do we hold on to them? Where is our love for them in light of our love for God? And so I want you to just think as you go through this study, as you look at Israel, they loved their idols. They forgot God. God wasn't even on the scale for them. Where are we in our life with idols? What things do we hold to more dearly than God? And ask Him to, to reveal that to your heart. I can't give you a list because it's very individual. Something that might not be an idol for you might be an idol for me. But something that won't be an idol for me might be an idol for you. It's very individual, and it's all driven by the love of our heart. The love of our heart needs to be God. God is jealous of our hearts. He's as jealous today as he was back then. He wants our love for our best. Let's close in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your words. God, I just pray that you'd be with the ladies as they just discuss your word and I pray, God, that your word would be changing our hearts. God, I pray that it would convict us of sin. We would see your faithfulness and your love, and we would worship you with an even greater thankfulness of heart, God, for the blessings you've given us. Thank you for all that you've done and for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.